Hello, it's Thursday, March the 10th, and this is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail newsroom. An extraordinary find, Ernest Shackleton ship Endurance, found two miles beneath the waves after sinking in 1915, and remarkably, it's in very good condition. The survey which shows thousands of children are not ready for school. When they turn up on their first day, some aren't potty drained and some can't even speak. The oligarchs that are being sanctioned, including the most famous of them all in Britain, Roman Abramovich, the owner of Chelsea Football Club. But first, we're talking about the pressure on Home Secretary Priti Patel to sort out the Ukrainian refugee visa crisis. A new streamlined approach for Ukrainians to come to the UK will be in operation from Tuesday, according to the Home Secretary Priti Patel. They won't have to visit a visa application centre and can give their biometric data in the UK. The changes have been agreed following calls to remove the red tape around the process for those fleeing the Russian Invasion. I'm joined now by Heaven Crawley, who's research professor at Coventry University Centre for Trust, Peace and Social Relations. Professor, uh, this has been a shambles. There's no other word for it. 22, 23, was even 27,000 refugees applied to come into Britain. And as of last night, barely a thousand had made it. Yes, absolutely. It's been a shambles at many different um, levels. First of all, of course, the number of people that are applying to the UK is is very small um, relative to the numbers in um, neighbouring countries of Ukraine. We've got more than 1.2 million in, in Poland, 800,000 in, in um, Romania and some of the other neighbouring countries. So in fact, the numbers would be very small anyway. But the fact that the UK is limiting entry to those people who have family members already in the UK means that already you've got a massive filter in place in terms of eligibility. But then we've had the farce of this requirement to apply for a visa before arriving, which means you can't even get on a plane or um, get, get, get to the UK. You have to first wait, queue, go back to different places, apply. We've heard of people having to do 600 mile round trips uh, from Calais to Paris, for example, with children and bags to be able to make these applications. So I think a, a farce is, is an understatement. It's just been a mess from the get-go. It's understandable that the government wants to have checks in place because otherwise anyone could get in, potential terrorists, Russia could exploit the situation and get um, subversive Russians into the country. And we know that they used Novichok, Russia, in Salisbury some years ago. But it does seem that the Home Office seemed ill-prepared. The visa centres um, weren't set up on border in border towns as of yesterday. And other countries had been much more able to deal with the much larger numbers and they dealt with it much more quickly. Yes, I mean, basically, we need to be clear about what a visa does. All a visa does is effectively verify somebody's identity, almost invariably through their passport. So what they're introducing next week is that basically that if you've got a passport, you don't have to go through that process. Those people that don't have passports will actually have to still go through the same process. So, um, so that's what they could have done from the get-go. If you had a passport, so it was clear that you were an Ukrainian national, then you don't have to go through the process of getting a visa, which is essentially verifying um, that process. Um, but what the rest of the European Union done, have done, of course, is introduce um, what's called temporary protection, so that basically once you're in the country, you then go through that process of verification. So you're still subject to all the same checks and all the same 
um, very rigorous, as we know immigration controls are, rigorous checks about your identity, but you're in the system and you're in the country and you're at a point where you can then um, safely do that and not with all the additional stresses of, of what's happening. But we do still have this problem, as I alluded to earlier, that those that don't have family in the UK have no possibility of even going through any of these systems. So it's highly discriminatory against people who, who, who haven't got those connections in the first place. So I think, I mean, we're, we're, what we're seeing coming up in terms of the streamlined process is better than what we've had, but it's still far from being anywhere close to what's needed, particularly when you bear in mind that it's two weeks today that the invasion happened, and look how many people have been displaced. This is not going to be over next week. It's not going to be over next month. It probably will be months if not years and we have still got a lot of people who we know will be displaced because they're only just moving in on Kiev. So the, the fact that we, we're at this kind of ad hoc, if you like, decision making, changing something on a week by week basis when we've only just started, we need to get this right, push it right and then be prepared for what's going to come next because there is more to come and that's a reality of this situation. Is this institutionalising competence at the Home Office? I remember many years ago, and you'll remember as well as I do, John Reid, now Lord Reid, uh, who was in both Blair and Brown's government, saying it was um, dysfunctional Home Office and not fit for purpose. And here we are again, more problems uh, again. Or do you think it's not so much incompetence as perhaps a mindset about refugees and asylum seekers coming into Britain in the first place? In truth, I think it's it's both and that they play into each other in very particular ways. I say it's both because I used to work in the Home Office. Um, I actually joined the Home Office in, in 2000. I was there for a couple of years and I was doing research on indeed how the Home Office functions. This was around the time that literally tens of thousands of asylum applications were found in the basement sitting in, in, in damp boxes. So, you know, there's a level of just administrative incompetence that's clear and has been clear, you know, not just in this government, not under the previous one, regardless of political parties, for 20 plus years now, we've had these problems, even longer, 25 years, nearly. So that's one side of it. But I think you're absolutely right. The mindset is critical here, because if you think it's an important issue and it needs to be dealt with quickly and responsibly, then I think you would put the resources and the energy into doing that. But in fact, what we've seen in the UK for the last two decades is a very, very anti-refugee, quite a hostile environment. Um, you know, look at the Syrians, the Afghans, the Iraqis, they were all fleeing exactly the same sorts of situations that we're seeing now with the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians, it seems to me, are getting more sympathy and more, there's more concern because it's in the region. But, you know, this kind of attack on not just people getting caught up in the crossfire, but deliberately, deliberately targeting citizens. This is not just a feature of the Ukrainian conflict. This has been going on for decades everywhere. And yet people have been almost unwilling to accept that this terrible thing could happen. And so we've had people arriving from countries and being disbelieved, routinely disbelieved about what they've gone through and people thinking that they're somehow just on the make coming to make themselves a better life economically when this is exactly the kind of scenario that they found themselves in. So I think it's a combination to be frank. It's a political lack of will to step up to our international obligations and it's a you know fundamentally flawed bureaucratic process that makes it so poor and slow and cumbersome in the first place. And what we're seeing now is just a sort of reflection of that really. Fascinating. That's Helen Heaven Crawley. She's research professor at Coventry University Centre for Trust, Peace and Social Relations. Thanks for coming on. 
So it's finally happened. The Chelsea Football Club owner, Roman Abramovich, has been sanctioned by the British government as part of its continuing response to Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine. He's one of seven oligarchs to be hit with fresh sanctions, along with billionaires Igor Sekin and Oleg Deripaska, both allies of Vladimir Putin. I'm joined now by Roman Borisovich. He's an anti-corruption campaigner and the founder of Clamp K, which is a public advocacy group against corruption. Uh, Roman, this is the big one. Um, Roman Abramovich, the Prime Minister in the Commons a couple of weeks ago, suggested that uh, he was going to be a person of interest and then had to return to the Commons to clarify it. But they've now clearly got all their legal ducks in a row and have moved against him. Well, it is a big one, but purely from symbolical perspective. Yeah. Indeed, Abramovich was the first oligarch that uh, England got to know. And if you, if you recall the newspapers at the time when he was bidding for Chelsea, the mildest term they called him was shadowy tycoon from Siberia. That overnight became a legitimate uh, British businessman owner of Chelsea FC. Um, how significant will this be in the respect that this will get to the ears of uh, Vladimir Putin and this will presumably frustrate him, make him angry, but it will make, remind him of the concerted action now, Roman, that is being taken by Western countries around the world to try to uh, strangle the Russian economy and the, and the wealthy men around the Russian dictator. Well, this one, I think, will be slightly more uh, painful for, for Mr. Putin because uh, Abramovich is his personal ballot. And, uh, you know, has been uh, unclear what sort of what proportion of, of money, how they split the uh, Abramovich's fortune. But the fact that the that Kremlin paid Abramovich $13 billion within the same year uh, as, it, as they jailed uh, another oil tycoon, Khodorkovsky, and took away his, uh, confiscated his oil company for free, that gives you an idea that the money is not entirely Abramovich. Now Putin is going to be hurt more than politically. That's hitting his his pocket. Well, that's that's very good to hear. And and of course, the foreign secretary has told the House of Commons, Roman, that um, the the law is being changed to speed up the process to sanction oligarchs. They're moving the appropriateness test. They're going to increase fines uh, and a requirement for businesses to declare beneficial owners, which they've got to do within six months. What is the appropriateness test? Can you explain that? Well, I think that the appropriateness test is the origin of funds. But most importantly, we don't have six months. That's the problem. Yeah. There is a war going, there is a war going on. And if six months, we campaigned for this law for seven years. We started with consultations in 2016. And at the, at the, at the end of these consultations, when six months was acceptable to us, it is not any longer. We need to move much faster. And that's why we support Dame Margaret Hodge's uh, amendments calling for 28 days. I mean, we need to figure out who owns what much faster than that before uh, wealth is going to be is going to change hands and oligarchs will sail out of Britain. I, I, I get that. And Dame Margaret Hodge, she's a very senior Labour MP, 28 days, she says that's got to be how quickly it can be done. But is there not a view already, Roman, that President Putin was threatening an invasion of, of Ukraine for a very long time and that oligarchs like Abramovich will already have moved a lot of their money out of Britain into other potential offshore havens? I don't think they did. Uh, I, I don't think anybody believed that uh, the West will do anything like that. Right. Uh, 
like last time they poisoned they they, they poisoned a British citizen on yeah. British soil yeah uh, with with uh, chemical warfare agents. What did we do? Send a hundred diplomats back home. A mm. hundred oligarchs were having a party on their private jets flying into London that day. So do you think, with, with the exception of the fact that the, the oligarchs are going to have six months to have to declare their assets, do you think the government is doing much better, is going much further with its, with its proposals? No, I don't think so. First of all, uh, what we are demanding is that uh, they would freeze all the anonymous uh, properties owned by anonymous offshore companies right now. Then they can have six months to understand and to... Uh, scrutinize the, the ownership, and then if if the ownership of the owners are legitimate business people, please, you know, you can have your your companies, and then if you want to move them, uh, you you know, it's in your interest to prove your legitimacy and the origin of funds, and you can move if you can prove it today, you can move your company, you can move sell your property tomorrow. So that's that's not a problem. Now, you know, we have done probably enough on the financial side. We have uh, delisted uh, companies, but look at things like 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 Yevraz. A company which is manufacturing steel, second largest steel production in Russia. They also produce ferrovanadium, which is the the armor, the armor for Russian tanks mm. fighting in Ukraine. That company is headquartered in the UK. Abram, which holds thirty percent, and it's freely trading. And we're not, you know, these all these things, uh, uh, these companies, these oligarchs, at this time should be treated as as uh, enemy combatants. We are in the war. Is an oligarch on the board of that company? It's owned by a whole bunch of Russian oligarchs, including Abram, which owns 30%, uh, and others, Abramov, Lafralov, uh, but because they don't own, uh, none of them owns, owns 51%, owns control, they're not deemed to be controlling Yevrat. I see, I see. Well, they've got clever lawyers, haven't they? That's been part of the problem here, uh, Roman. Um, they've got clever lawyers that I think have been running rings around the government's own legal, legal eagles. Well, we'll get to them as well, in due course. Well, I hope you're right. That's Roman Borisovich. He's an anti-corruption campaigner. He's the founder of Clamp K, which is an anti-corruption uh, advocacy. Thanks for joining us. Teachers are saying half of new pupils aren't school ready with some starting class in nappies and others not even knowing how to hold a pencil. Growing numbers of four-year-olds begin reception year unable to pay attention or even feed themselves. The problem is being fueled by parents, some parents spending too much time on their computer or electronic devices. I'm joined now by Chris McGovern, who's chairman of the Campaign for Real Education. Chris, I've talked to your organisation about this before. I mean, it is unfathomable to me when I started school at four, I think I knew how to hold a pencil and to draw a picture. What's happened to children today? Or is it the parenting we've got to worry about? Well, it's multifaceted, of course. It's partly the parenting, of course. Some parents are quite uh, lazy about this. I mean, there's one thing, and I've taught with, I've taught children from very poor backgrounds, and I've also taught the children of the richest people in the country. And they have one thing in column, common when they fail their children. When children turn up at school at four or five and they, and they can't do the basic things, and some of them have to come in nappies and so forth, they have one thing in common. Because parents should talk to me as a head teacher. Why, they would say, why, Chris, what can we do to help our child catch up? And I would say to them, no matter how rich they were, there's one thing you can't buy as a parent, no matter how much money you've got, and that's time. You have yeah. to give your children time. And too many parents these days are so busy 
and they're well-intentioned, but they can't give the child the time that's necessary. And yes, therefore, when they come into school at four and five, we've got teachers and particularly classroom assistants, often they're doing their nappy changing. We've got children coming into school who are not ready to just survive in the classroom. And look, I've been in schools, um, it's a few years ago now, so this is going back a little bit, where children arrive at the age of five and they can't speak. So you think there's a problem with changing nappies. There's a bigger problem when children arrive and they can't speak. And that is quite disastrous, you know, because we're, we're in a country where it's really important, as in all countries, that we give attention to children at their youngest age. When they come into school, it's incredibly important. It's much more important than when they're 18, taking A-levels. The first year is the most important year in a child's school life and only less important than the first year of their entire life. So it's incredibly important, and thank goodness the male are covering this. Interesting, Chris, too, because clearly these parents, if they haven't potty trained their child or nappy trained their child, they're clearly not reading a book to their child every night too, which will all add, I guess, to the lack of preparedness for four-year-olds or five-year-olds when they go to school for the first time. Yeah, this is, this is true. You know, in English law, um, the 1944 Education Act, it says the responsibility to educate a child is the parents. Now, most parents send their children to school, some educate at home. But it's true, they are coming to school and parents haven't, haven't actually spent the time doing the, the very basic things. It makes it incredibly difficult for the teachers. But you're right when you talk about the, the impact of the technology, the digital devices, because... You know, I, I sometimes talk about this. We don't give children idea. We don't give children cocaine when they're four and five, but we give them digital cocaine because these devices actually are addictive. And we don't yet know the full impact. What we do know from the work of Baroness Greenfield, a leading brain scientist, by the way, she wrote a book called, uh, called Mind Change a couple of years ago, two or three years ago, in which she said, you know, we talk a lot about environmental change, climate change, but not enough about mind change. And you, she, can, she showed by looking at photographs of the brain, how the brain is changing because we, young brains in particular, are adapting to the technology. And there be children, to some, in my experience, I taught for 35 years, children are becoming less empathetic, less understanding of each other. They have attention spans, which can be very short, very difficult there for the teacher. So yes, we are hard, we, we're actually sowing the seeds for a major social problem in the future. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because this survey, um, it's, a prime, it's a survey of 1,000 primary school teachers by YouGov. It also showed that a number of children, when they came into a classroom, were absolutely clueless about how to play with another child. Yeah, that, that, that's so sad, isn't it? Look, to some extent, I can say that's going to be the fault, partly, of, of, of the lockdown, but not, not completely at all. It's really sad when children can't interact. It's so important for children to mix with other children. And I, I've seen children you know, these days, when they, when they, even when they're looking at a page, never mind interacting, they're looking at a page on, on, in a book, and they try to use the page, the printed page, as though it were a tablet. They try to move the text around, open the pictures and so forth. And so they're focused so much on the technology, they're not focused so much on their friends or their, 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 what should be their friends. This social side of early school life in particular, is absolutely fundamental for us being human beings. It's incredibly important. I only wish sometimes someone would stand out and say, look, this is the key, yeah. We've, if we've got any money at all left, we've got to put it into early years learning. Never mind about the A-levels. It's far too late. Put it where it matters, and it matters at the beginning of a child's life. And just finally, Robert Halfon, who you know him well, I know him well, Chairman of the Commons Education Select Committee, he said we need a catch-up programme to help families and nurseries teach children practical and social skills. Well, who's going to do that? Who's going to teach that? Is that, is that more pressure on teachers who've got enough on their plate already by the sound of it? He is right, I and mean, he's 
unusual in being a good chairman of the Education Select Committee. The parents I work with now from very, very poor backgrounds have a problem. It's not desire to help their children. I have parents now who can't read and write themselves. They've been through our education system, so they can't really help their child very much. So he's right to say we need an adult, an adult education program to make up for the failure the last two or three decades of our school system. It's a bit of a crisis, isn't it? And we've got to do something about it because we're looking at the future here, our children. It certainly is a crisis. That's Chris McGovern. He's chairman of the Campaign for Real Education, talking about that YouGov survey of a 1,000 teachers on how many children are not prepared for school. Thanks for joining us. Now, time for our regular City Update with Ruth Sunderland, Group Business Editor at the Daily Mail and Mail on Sunday. So, Ruth, um, interesting times at Marks & Spencer. Absolutely. Um, this is literally news just in, um, Andrew. Steve Rowe, who's been the Chief Executive Officer for six years, has announced that he's going to step down. And he's going to be succeeded by not one, but two people. Um, Marks & Spencer's is actually having its first female chief executive Katie Bickerstaff is going to be the co-chief executive and a chap called Stuart Machen I think I'm pronouncing that correctly but anyway I'm sure someone will tell me if I'm not he's going to be chief executive now my reading of that is he is still a little bit higher up in the pecking order I've been calling for Marks and Spencer to have a female chief executive for some time and Katie Bickerstaff's the first but she has got this male co-chief executive who seems to be one notch ahead of her um, at her side. Anyway, it's very interesting. Um, Marks and Spencer's had a bit of a torrid time over the past few years, absolutely bounced back um, this year. And Katie Bickerstaff is going to be looking at, at driving the digital and data part of the business. So she's also going to be looking after clothing and home, but that all important push into new technology um, and into digital shopping, that's going to be under her portfolio. So I think it marks for a while as needed a woman at the top um, to get that fashion, that all-important women's wear offering, um, to get that right. Absolutely. Great story, Ruth. And I have absolutely no doubt that who will get the first interview with her? Ruth Sunderland. I hope so. <laughs> I'm looking forward Thank to reading you. it. Nice to talk to you. That's Ruth Sunderland, who is, of course, our group business editor at the Daily Mail and Mail on Sunday. So scientists have found one of the world's most famous lost shipwrecks. It's the Endurance, of course, the vessel of the Antarctic explorer Serena Shackleton. The Endurance was found at the bottom of the Weddell Sea 107 years after it sank. It was crushed by sea ice going down in 1915, forcing Shackleton and his men to make an escape on foot and in a small lifeboat. The wreckage of the ship is in remarkable condition. I'm joined now by Martin Brooks, who's a Shackleton expert and co-founder of the Shackleton Clothing Company. Martin, this must be um, like the Holy Grail for you to have found endurance and for it to be in such good shape. It really is quite miraculous, incredible news. We've been uh, working with the expedition crew and in fact we supplied them with their clothing and jackets for their trip down there. So it was getting to the end of the window, the weather, the weather window, which is only really about six weeks before the ice was going to close in. You know, potentially the expedition ship suffered the, the similar issues that Shackleton suffered a, a century ago. But um, yes, it was actually located on Saturday, uh, which by an amazing coincidence was 100 years to the day um, after Shackleton was buried himself. So on the 5th of March uh, back in 1922. So, yes, yeah, so it's an incredible thing. And, and um, 
you know, the, the chances of finding it were remotely, you know, so, so slim because it's in, it's in nearly three kilometers or just over three kilometers of water um, uh, with sea ice over the top for all but about six or eight weeks of the, of the year. So it's a, it's a pretty incredible feat of marine archaeology and logistics and, uh, uh, and determination, or as Shackleton said, by endurance we conquer. And they, and they certainly have endured and put up with the horrendous conditions to make it happen. And it was still upright on the seabed, and ironically, the ice which impacted it protected it. Yes, that's right. So the obviously, if, if it was sinking, once it sunk, it um, you know it took three kilometres to to get to the seabed, and it would have hit the seabed at quite at quite a thud, um, and because it's a hard sand seabed down there. But the endurance itself was one of the most was probably one of the strongest ships in the world with an ice strengthened hull uh, made of wood back in you know, a century ago. So. The ship absolutely um, survived the impact, and I think because she went down keel first, in a way that sort of all the broken spars and masts and things above actually probably acted as sort of a reverse keel and and, uh, and kept her upright. But yeah, so when if you've seen the pictures and the video, it's remarkable the the clarity and and the the feeling that obviously they, that they just left the ship one day because they were trying to take things off it at the very last minute, you know, right the way up to the moment that she sank. But you can see boots in there. You can see people's coffee, you know, their teacups, all, all kinds of things. And there are lots of famous photographs from that, from the mission um, taken by Frank Hurley, the expedition photographer. And we've got to know over the years so many parts of that boat so intimately. So then to see the ship for real, you know, <laughs> down there, um, back again from the from the depths, it's just uh, it was fine thinking. When I when I found out, it was just uh, yeah, it was absolutely a hell of a moment. What happens to it now, Martin? What happens to endurance? What would what were they? What will you Shackleton um, uh, champions do with do with the wreckage? Well, it's a good question. She's actually a protected monument uh, under the Antarctic Treaty, so um, nobody's allowed to touch her. So um, unless everybody agrees that that's something they want to do, but the logistics involved in actually raising her would just be uh, incalculable almost. I mean, the, 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 the shipwreck finder, Menson Bound, um, who, who found her, um, he said that one day it may be possible there'll be the time, technology and money to do it, but it won't be in his lifetime. He said, this is a little gift to the future from us. So it would be almost impossible to bring her up. Um, I'm sure they'll do more surveys, um, <clears throat> but they will need permission um, uh, to, uh, to actually go inside the hole with the, with the mini drones, etc. But... Um, yeah, so so I, I think that there'll be a do- well, there will be a documentary, an Geo uh, documentary that uh, Dan Snow is putting together, um, and that will be because Shackleton is taught in a lot of um, is on the main uh, curriculum and, and, and syllabus in the UK and all over the world. This you know amazing story of um, of, uh, of his survival and uh, an escape from Antarctica. So it, it's a brilliant, brilliant way of making something that may be seen as a kind of historical yarn actually seem incredibly fresh and real and relevant. But what I love about it is in most, most shipwrecks, uh, you associate shipwrecks with kind of terrible human loss and, and a sort of violent end for, for poor souls. Um, but of course, this is the opposite. It's almost a happy shipwreck. The, the, the ship is down there, but you know, by definition in the whole story, nobody died because Shackleton managed by his incredible leadership and, uh, and courage and fortitude to save every one of his men. Amazing, including a, a, an 800-mile journey in one of the lifeboats, which I think is still preserved to this day. That's right, it is. It's um, The James Caird is, is, the, is the name of the lifeboat, and she's at Dulwich College because um, uh, Shackleton was a schoolboy at Dulwich College in South London um, <clears throat> from when he was nine to when he was about 15, when he ran away to sea. And um, 
yeah, they've got her there, and um, I've, I've uh, been and seen her many times, and um, and just marvelled at how they did this 800-mile journey. Six of them, hurricane force winds, 50-foot waves. They only managed to get two sun sites on the sexton uh, on the way, and the, the chances of them actually you know, getting to where they got to was so incalculably small. But um, the, the skipper Frank Worsley was a, frankly a human pilot whale. He just has this incredible ability to. Uh, uh, to, to find South Georgia. And then, of course, when they got there, they then had to mountaineer over uncharted mountains, um, the equivalent of sort of going from Geneva to Turin across the Alps. Um, and then Shackleton then um, raised the alarm. And then he took three more attempts, the three different ships, to be able to then get down to uh, back to Elephant Island where the remaining 22 men were marooned. And I love the bit in the story when he tells it that... Um, he came, uh, they, they, the Yelko, the name of the ship, they, they anchored it, and then he got in a, a small rowing boat, and as he was going towards the shore, he was trying to count the number of men on the shore because he couldn't work out whether any of them had died or not, or whether they'd all made it. And he shouted out to his, to his uh, number two, Frank Wilde, are you all well? And Frank Wilde shouted back, we are all well, boss. And he knew in that moment that he'd done it, and he wrote to his wife and said, I've done it, not a man lost. And it's just a you know, just incredible story. An extraordinary story, an extraordinary that endurance uh, is in such good shape. That's Martin Brooks, who is a Shackleton expert, and he's the co-founder of the Shackleton Clothing Company. That's all we've got time for today. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back with you tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. Good night.